welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Have you ever been in a totally pitch black room where it seems as if there are things everywhere? Even when you know where everything is or where it was the last time you saw it, if the place is pitch black, everything feels different. In a pitch black room, you stretch out your arms because you expect to crash into a wall or a piece of furniture. Even in a familiar place, once the lights go out, you expect something to jump out and attack you. In other words, in the darkness, you expect to get hurt. There are times in life when you can expect to be in the darkness when you will not be able to see what is directly in front of you or what is over in the corner. In these times, you must rely on your instincts and your memory. You must also realize that you are not in control. God is. When you find yourself in the darkness of an unfamiliar experience, do not fight God for control. Do not grope, grab, or swat off imaginary demons. Rather than shielding yourself from the expectation of pain, surrender. Drop your hands to your side. Take a long, deep breath. Concentrate on one thing that you know. Remember that God loves you and will protect you no matter where you are. Remember that what you can't see, God can. When you invoke the light of God to lead you and protect you, you will miraculously be able to see the way in or a new way out. Well, it's here in the Archbishop's Corner where the darkness of the past, the unknown of the future, or the difficulty of the present are all put into perspective through the faith leadership of Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for meeting us in the Archbishop's Corner where you help us affirm through faith the light of God's love residing in every life. How are you How today? beautiful. What a beautiful statement. I'm uh, doing all that. That's the role of an archbishop, I believe. Uh, oh, well, you, you know, oh, uh, helping us affirm our all, faith. After all the years I've been doing it, I'm happy <laughs> to hear that I'm doing something so good. <laughs> you didn't know you were doing that, right? Well, I guess I kind of did. <laughs> anyway, today is the start of Discover Catholic Schools Week. It's a week designated to help schools connect with prospective families, donors, educators, and other community members. What can be done to help showcase what makes Catholic schools the best choice for those families looking to find the right school, Archbishop? Well, I'm happy to say, I'm delighted to say that after some very rough going in my years as Archbishop, where the number of schools had to be closed, that uh, today things are really looking up for most of our schools, uh, almost all of them. And um, it's partly due to uh, covid uh, it's partly due to the craziness that's going on in public life about ideologies being imposed uh, in mm. schools in certain circumstances. I can't say where or exactly you're in Connecticut. I'm not pointing the finger at anything in particular, but there is a sense of, of things that are kind of going awry. And then also the, uh, the achievement. I mean, you know, I've said this before. I take absolutely no satisfaction, no delight whatsoever in the travails and problems that our public schools are facing with enrollment, with participation, with all of these ideological things. But the result is that we also believe in our Catholic schools, and uh, this is helping us because 
parents are beginning to, to uh, realize that what the Catholic schools have to offer. Certainly they have academic excellence. Uh, that's been shown time and time again. Our test scores are absolutely outstanding. So, so things are looking up. And well, I'm very happy about that. With this positive swing in increased enrollment in Catholic schools, can you envision a time when we might open a Catholic school? Well, uh, the problem is that the great challenge nationally, as you see in other states uh, reported, that school choice is making its way uh, forward, uh, school choice that would not exclude Catholic schools. You know, some kind of, not uh, direct aid to the schools, but but to the parents to give them some possibility of school choice. Uh, And uh, so naturally, for years, we have tried to put this forward and and to uh, to to uh, promote it but uh, it's certainly a very uphill battle here in Connecticut to try to, to get anything but so that's that's moving forward uh, and um, I think uh, that you know to the extent that that parents have a greater ability to send their kids uh, to uh, a non-public school uh, I think that that's for, for the good and it's again it's without prejudice to our public schools I'm not I mean, the majority of our children in our country are going to be in public schools, and we, we have to all work and pray and, and support a quality education, uh, but one that's free of all kinds of ideological things and one that really uh, promotes academic excellence. Tomorrow is the feast day of St. Francis Xavier Cabrini, the first United States citizen to be canonized a saint. In 35 years, Mother Cabrini founded 67 institutions dedicated to caring for the poor, the abandoned, the uneducated, and the sick. Mother Cabrini crossed the Atlantic Ocean more than 30 times in service of the church and the people that she was serving to set up orphanages and hospitals, convent schools, often marginalized Italian immigrants. Her deep trust in the loving care of her God gave her the strength to be a valiant woman doing the work of Christ. Archbishop, are the days of building Catholic hospitals and schools and orphanages and so on, as Mother Cabrini did in the 19th century, gone? Well, you can't ever uh, replicate one age uh, to another in its needs. I mean, I, I think I think what we have to do, just as she saw the need right in front of her eyes about all these people and what they needed and how she could help, and she... She dedicated herself creatively and energetically to meeting the need. We have to look at our needs today and the situation of today. Uh, so what are our challenges and how do we bring the faith to bear on them? Uh, I don't know that we can say that just, uh, you know, building, to just say building Catholic schools and hospitals, it's a different world today. And so our response is going to be somewhat different. But God knows that there are tremendous needs out there in the community. Mm-hmm. And through our Catholic charities, through our, our uh, Catholic um, institutions, uh, we, we, we try to meet those needs. I mean, a, a perfect example is a Mother Teresa of Calcutta, St. Teresa of Calcutta. Like Mother Cabrini in her day, St. Teresa in her time and her place in India did the same thing. And here in the United States today, we have so many wounded souls spiritually as well as physically. I mean, I think in many respects, our problems are far more spiritual uh, uh, than they are material because many of our material problems are caused by spiritual problems. You know, Mother Teresa in India could talk about a city of joy, that these people who otherwise had very little in life uh, had such a sense of family and community that they there was a joy to them. Uh, and here we may have 
uh, the material means, uh, but we are suffering spiritually and emotionally, uh, psychologically, uh, and and that's where the church really has to try to uh, provide or to bring Christ and the gospel to bear on this uh, spiritual desolation. You know, my big mantra from Pope Francis, there are three kinds of destitutions, uh, material, moral, and spiritual. And, uh, you know, in the United States, God knows there are many people with material destitution that need to be helped. But we, to me, one of the prime things is the moral and spiritual destitution that people are facing. Thursday marks 31 years since the new catechism was introduced. It was the first time since 1563 that the Roman Catholic Church issued a new catechism, and the document was not written in the question-and-answer form that many people associate with the word catechism. Like the Bible, is this another book no Catholic home should be without, Archbishop? Well, yes and no. I think uh, that the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church was a monumental uh, articulation for our time of the uh, faith of the Church. And as such, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a foundational document. But it was meant to be uh, the source of other uh, uh, catechisms. And I would do a commercial for the uh, United States Catechism for uh, Adults, available both in English and Spanish. And that is a product of the United States bishops based on the universal catechism. And yes, I do think faith has a content. You know, uh, it, it's not just a, a vague feeling. I mean, there's a revelation in Christ that's been handed down and the teaching of the church. And so I would recommend that everybody uh, have access to, I suppose it might be online as well these days, as most people do consult but it's the United States uh, Catechism for Adults in English and Spanish, or, of course, the Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church that you referred to. Let's take a look now, Archbishop, at the road to happiness in life, and this is where we examine the wisdom of Pope Francis drawn from some of the Pope's writings. I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, and we'll ask you to comment with your own thoughts on what the Pope has said. This is taken from Pope Francis's homily delivered on December 12th of 2014, and it's called Mary's Magnificat Introduces Us to the Beatitudes. It says, The Magnificat introduces us to the Beatitudes, the fundamental essence and law of the gospel message. In light of that, let us today ask for the holy Christian grace that the future be forged by the poor and the suffering, by the meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, by the merciful and the pure in heart, by those who work in the name of peace and those who are persecuted for the sake of Christ's name, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May grace be forged by those who today are slaves in all but name, the exploited, or those who suffer at the hands of an idolatrous, wasteful, throwaway culture. Archbishop, your thoughts. Well, we all do well to meditate very much on the Beatitudes, uh, because if we want to find out the road to heaven, you can't find a better roadmap than the Beatitudes that Christ taught and uh, the Pope has just uh, summarized them there. Like Jesus once said, go and do likewise. That's really what the mandate is uh, for us. We have to realize that uh, people are looking for happiness in all the wrong places sometimes. And uh, beatitude simply means happiness uh, in Latin, beatus, blessed or happy. The, you know, it's interesting that the word can mean both, blessed and happy, because the two go together. Uh, and if you think that you're going to be happy uh, not following a blessed life, well, the happiness you have is going to be very empty and fleeting. Uh, 
and in the end leave you high and dry, no matter how much you think otherwise. But if you follow the path that Christ has charted for us and shown us, uh, and the saints show us, then you're going to really find happiness, as Jesus says, uh, a, a joy that, the, that, that he gives that the world cannot give. And that's really what it's all about, everything we're trying to do as a church and uh, our preaching and teaching. We're not, people don't sometimes appreciate that, that there are do's and don'ts, but the do's and don'ts are, are, are meant to, to show a path to, to true happiness. Let's take a look now, Archbishop, at our Gospel reading on this 12th day of November when the Church celebrates the 32nd Sunday of Ordinary Time. The liturgical year is quickly coming to a close, and our reading for today is taken from the 25th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. After this dramatic presentation of today's Gospel account, we'll talk about its significance in our own lives as we ask you, Archbishop, for your thoughts. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be compared to ten maidens who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those maidens rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, Perhaps there will not be enough for us and for you. Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other maidens came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Archbishop, what wisdom do you take away from this gospel account? Stay awake, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Well, Jesus often preached uh, parables that talked about uh, being prepared and being wise in the things that really matter. You know, whether they were parables about uh, building a building and and laying the foundation or, or counting ahead of time what you need to achieve something and the fact that if you don't do this you're it's going to fail you you know uh, mm-hmm. whether like building a house on a solid foundation so when the flood comes you're not swept away all of these homey earthy examples that Jesus gave in his teaching that are timeless for our age and every age to say that you have to direct your life in such a way that you have your eyes realistically fixed on the prize that you were created to be forever with God in heaven. And if you want to get there, you have to live the kind of life that Christ uh, preached and taught us and showed us. And if you're going to do that, you're going to be a clever, smart person. And if you don't do it, you're being, and Jesus uses the word foolish, you're being foolish. Uh, And so we need to shout that from the housetops as part of our preaching, that people wake up Mm. and do the things that, you know, sow the seed that gives a harvest, not of weeds that are burned, as that's another parable, but as the good harvest that is, goes in, in God's barn and that leads to life. So, I mean, it, the fundamental gospel from the beginning of Christ's ministry was repent and believe. 
that repent means, you know, get on the right path, change your ways, look for those things that are, that are true and good and beautiful, not for the things that the world proposes as true and good and beautiful, which very often are the opposite. Is it a note of selfishness that I detect on the part of the wise virgins unwilling to share their oil with the foolish ones, or are they being prudent? Well, they're being prudent because the reality, what they say is, well, if we, if we give you ours, we're all going to, we're all going to uh, falter. We're all going to run out. And, and the point is, in the parable, of course, is that we can't really share that kind of, uh, of personal preparedness. It's, it's not possible. We can pray for others. We can pray for one another. But ultimately, we bear, that oil is not just in a lamp. It's within ourselves. And that's not something you can give to another person. Are we talking about the end of time on earth when the Lord says, you know neither the day nor the hour? Absolutely, yes. Jesus says that to us all the time, that we know. And, of course, we can say, well, it's been 2,000 years and it's still the world's still around the way it's been. But I can tell you, you and me are not going to be around 2,000 years. Right. Uh, we all eventually, uh, within uh, a twinkling of an eye, you know, what does the psalm say? 70 are years or 80 if we are strong. And even today when people live to be 100, eventually we do have uh, uh, to leave this world and give an account of ourselves. And it's true. We know not the day nor the hour when we as individuals will leave this world. You know, sometimes today they keep talking about ways scientifically to keep us alive forever or something. I find that a horrible thought. I mean, I'm not suicidal, God knows. And I hope that I'm blessed with a, a, a healthy and long life. But I don't want to stay on this earth forever. I wouldn't want to, to, to be uh, uh, somehow, and not as if that were possible, it's not, but to be immortalized that I can live this kind of life indefinitely. As St. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are ever restless until they rest in you. Uh, and so, you know, uh, the, the tradition, uh, the, the church, the scriptures, is that we look forward with eager expectation to, to uh, a new heaven and a new earth, to being with God in the fullness of joy and eternity, and united with the communion of saints. Let's take a look now, Archbishop, at some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners. For instance, Lorraine from Simsbury says, I dislike the rather constant refrain of the new evangelization. What is new about it, and why use the word new for an ancient faith? Yes, Lorraine, it's, it's not about the faith. It's about a new—let's uh, put it this way, that those places that uh, for many centuries have uh, identified as being uh, Christian or Catholic now find a huge number of people, an increasing number of people, who simply walk away. And so the point is that the, the new evangelization means reproposing to people— the fundamental good news of the gospel to them. And so how many of our Catholic brothers and sisters were baptized? They don't go to church. They don't have anything really to do of religious practice, and the number's growing. And I might add, it's not just about Catholics. This is religion in the United States and in Western Europe, particularly, are in great decline as far as the practice goes. So it's about reproposing uh, the truths of the gospel in a way that will enkindle in them a renewed interest and participation and conversion. So it's not the faith, you know. I mean, the scriptures say Jesus Christ, uh, the same yesterday, today, and forever. But we need to uh, 
we need to repropose it to people who have either taken it for granted, have fallen away, uh, or been lured away, and uh, we have to, to preach Christ uh, in that way. Rob from Naugatuck submitted a question. He says, I have heard people critique the way Jesus is depicted in imagery, especially these days when issues of representation have taken center stage in the world of art and entertainment. If we know that Christ was not Caucasian, why is he habitually depicted as such? Is it wrong to portray him in a way that may not be historically accurate? Well, Rob, I think, you know, I, uh, let's put it this way. I've, I can appreciate the sensitivity that uh, some people have uh, to, to recognize the diversity of the world, of its races, cultures, uh, languages, and even the injustices that sometimes have been perpetrated by one group against another. But that does not mean that uh, people should be uh, emptied of their identity uh, as who they were and and are. And uh, yes, Christ was a Jew. Christ was not a a black man. He was not an Asian man. He was, uh, I guess we would say, Caucasian. I think I'm correct in saying that Jewish people are... Uh, considered Caucasian in the sense of what we normally call uh, white. Uh, I don't always feel so white. <laughs> mm. I don't know that that color designation is, is necessarily the best because there are many shades uh, and hues of uh, different cultures and countries uh, that may still fit into uh, that, that kind of generalization. But uh, I would say that, you know, that, that in, in, in history and tradition, Jesus has been depicted in, in different ways, not necessarily, uh, let's put it this way, that a, a, a Renaissance Italian painter would paint uh, Christ and the Blessed Mother using the models of the Italian town in which he lived. But I have been to Japan, and I've seen Our Lady and the baby Jesus depicted in, in Oriental fashion. I've seen uh, Christ depicted uh, with different kinds of features, you know. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is we don't further the universality of salvation or the universality of Christ by denying uh, his uh, historical uh, reality. By the same token, his historical reality is not meant to exclude the universality of who he is and what his message is. So I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but is it wrong to portray him in a way that may not be historically accurate. Well, he's always been portrayed in ways that are historically inaccurate. I mean, if you look at Renaissance art or or you look at modern African art, Christian art, I know that Jesus is depicted uh, as a black man. Uh, it, it, this is just part of, our, of, our, uh, of the uh, universality of the gospel. And that's what it emphasizes, the universality of Christ's coming into our world not just for people who are Caucasian or people who are a certain color, but for everybody, right? Right. But at the same time, it does mean that God has spoken and acted in particular circumstances, in places, even among a particular people. And we, we do, you know, the historicity of that, uh, we can, it's, it's not wrong to represent that as well. Valerie from Morris says, The Church teaches that we are born with original sin, but if baptism cleanses original sin— then why do the children of baptized parents still need to be baptized? If the parents' original sin was removed by their baptism, one would think that they shouldn't be passing it down anymore. What is the Roman Catholic Church teaching on this? Well, Valerie, uh, the original sin is not something that is physically uh, transmitted. 
So it's not like uh, some kind of biological thing that is, uh, it's a profoundly spiritual thing that each person uh, uh, is uh, created, yes, through the, through the agency. We say that parents are co-creators with God in the sense that, that uh, biologically, physically, children are given birth uh, through their parents. But spiritually, uh, we don't uh, we don't say that it's transmitted in in that way. We are all uh, the children of Adam and Eve, and uh, from that we we derive uh, the state of of original sin. Marty from Rocky Hill says, "I was raised as a Roman Catholic and remember always seeing a number after the Pope's name. I was taught the number indicated how many popes had previously used the name." In reading the news stories about the recent synod, I noticed that the Pope is simply referred to as Pope Francis. Will he one day be referred to as Pope Francis I? Well, Marty, first of all, you say I was raised as a Roman Catholic. What am I to make of that? Mm. Does that mean that you don't consider yourself one today? And if not, I'll pray for you because I hope that you will uh, find your way back into uh, being a practicing member of the family. But be that as it may, it's really very simple. The first uh, person, uh, first pope to take that name is not called the first. And uh, you ask an interesting question, though, in the future, uh, when when there are more Pope Francis's, would he be Pope Francis I? Perhaps, but uh, I don't really know how to answer that. But for the moment, he's the only Pope Francis, so there's no need to say the first. Liz from Hartford says, November is the month of Thanksgiving but I'm having a difficult time finding reasons to be thankful. There's violence in my city, drama in my state, and a general sense of discord in the world. I know I should be thankful for my family, my job, my friends, and my health, but I am being overloaded with the negative. What can I do to snap me out of this rut and realize all the good that God has given me? Well, Liz, my heart goes out to you. I I suppose you could say, and I don't know what applies to you, but... uh, There are spiritual remedies, and there are also um, medical uh, remedies. I mean, if you're suffering from depression, you might want to uh, seek some professional help with that, but uh, perhaps not. Uh, And maybe you're just talking about uh, spiritual things. But, you know, for everything that, uh, I guess it's a question of count your blessings. Uh, Whatever difficulties and trials we have, just imagine how much uh, worse things could be. Uh, we have to be grateful for all the good things that are part of life. And I think we also can derive a positive feeling from trying to remedy the things that are negative, uh, either by our prayer if you, or by our actions. If you can be an agent in your family, your job, your friends, uh, and in participation in society, if you can be an agent for the positive by uh, your prayers and your actions— well, that is, uh, you know, the old saying, right? Better to light a candle than curse the darkness. Well, Jesus says that, you know, we, we are supposed to participate in his light for the world. And so you need to, to try your best to do that. And let's see if we can't squeeze in one last question, Archbishop. Roger from Bristol says, Pope Francis answered questions about the recent synod on synodality in an interview with Italian state television. One of these topics was regarding priestly celibacy. The Pope reaffirmed that the discipline can be changed. However, Pope Francis said he does not think eliminating mandatory priestly celibacy would help solve priest shortages. What is your opinion on this? 
Well, Roger, I've written on this many times, and I uh, talked about it many times. The, you know, uh, we already have uh, married priests in the Eastern churches. We even have uh, some uh, priests who have converted uh, to Catholicism from uh, Anglicanism, for example, who are married and were ordained are one of our priests. But the point is simply that this, that uh, celibacy uh, comes from apostolic times. It's it's rooted in the, the great tradition of the church, and it's meant to, uh, we don't have time to even talk about all that it's meant to signify uh, in, the, uh, in scripture and in tradition and in the life of the church. So because we have fewer priests today, uh, there's this talk about making celibacy optional, but I don't know what would really be served by that. It could risk losing in a very important element that goes back uh, to the scriptures themselves uh, with regard to uh, celibacy for the sake of the kingdom of God. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord, we thank you for all your gifts and blessings. And uh, during this month of November, when we're, our thoughts are turning toward Thanksgiving, we want to thank you now and every day for all that you've given us. We, we are reminded, Lord, that the very word Eucharist means Thanksgiving. So when we go to Mass and receive uh, Holy Communion, we pray that this month in particular we may be blessed with a grateful heart, even as now we wish to thank you for all that is good and all the blessings you give us. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you again in the near future. Until then, God bless and enjoy these days of fall. Thank you. You too. Thank you.